Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Welcome, everybody. This is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, your host for the Parlay podcast. With me today, I have Sean Ziegenfuse from Australia, and so this is this is quite unique because it is uh, nine, a little bit after nine p.m. here for me, but it, for him, it is eleven uh, a.m. in Australia. So I'm, I feel like I'm talking to the future. Um, mm-hmm. So, hi, Sean. How's it going? Very well, thanks. <laughs> So Sean is a speech and language pathologist, and he um, works for the Glen Eden School in Australia, which um, is a school that um, is actually known as an international leader on supporting children with speech, language, and communication needs. So I'm really thrilled to have you here with us today. This is a very unique program, a very unique school that I'm sure um, most countries around the world world wish they had. I certainly wish we had one of these schools in Canada. Um, and so, um, well, maybe we'll start, I'll, I'll, you know, invite you to tell us a bit more about yourself, um, maybe what, you know, bit personally about yourself and then what you do yeah. um, at the school or just in general. Yeah. Um, so I always usually start by saying first and foremost, I'm a dad. So I um, get the opportunity to have the lived language development experience quite up and personal. So I've got a almost seven-year-old and four-year-old. Um, so I've been able to watch their speech and language develop um, from a parental perspective, uh, which does make me reflect quite a lot on my clinical experiences, particularly prior to having children, um, and probably a few things I'd do different. Um, I've been a speech pathologist for a bit over a decade. Um, more recently, I've also done a master's in special education, majoring in early intervention and school leadership. So I've got um, a lovely dichotomy in the work I do between education and in speech pathology. Uh, more recently, I've um, sort of taken this more focus on developmental language disorder through the work that I've done. I started at the Glen Leiden School in 2010, working with the early uh, childhood students, so sort of our first couple of years of school. Um, I now work for the parent charity or not-for-profit, which is called Speech and Language Development Australia. So we run a number of services, one of which is the Glen Leiden School, which is um, for five to 17-year-old aged children with speech and language disorders. We also operate the school support service arm of our organisation, which goes out all around um, the state in which we work um, to support children with speech and language disorders within their school context. Um, And recently we've just launched a professional learning service um, of the organisation which I oversee as manager for research and advocacy. Uh, So a lot of my work is around uh, supporting um, the programs in evaluating the work that they do to ensure ensure that we're effective. Uh, Also looking at the programs we use to ensure that they are uh, evidence-based um, and if there isn't evidence what theories inform our practice um, to ensure that we provide really high quality intervention to children with developmental language disorder. And that's a little bit about 
my work. Um, more recently, I've um, become involved with Rattled, raising awareness of developmental language disorders. Um, uh, Salda is involved, or Speech and Language Development Australia is involved as an Australian partner. So I get to work with all of these wonderful people from all around the world to help raise awareness of DLD. And I'm a bit of a sucker for punishment. And I've just started my um, PhD in looking at the educational needs of children with DLD. Um, <laughs> So I've got a, a few things going on um, that I'm definitely very passionate about, raising awareness and supporting um, young people with developmental language disorder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you when you said that you, through your own children, you really got a better sense of what it is to mm-hmm. to learn a language and that whole process of language development. And I found that as well. It wasn't until I had my own children that I really had that aha moment <laughs> as a professional yeah. and thought, oh, okay, I really get it now. I really grasp um, what it is that we, we should expect and, and or, or not expect. And um, so it, it brings a whole different dimension to the understanding of speech development or speech and language development for sure. Absolutely. Um, now, you did mention um, the Glen Eden School. So just briefly, how many children attend this school? I'm, I'm curious. So we currently take up to about 100 children. Okay. Um, so we have all children that attend the school have uh, language as their primary impact on accessing the curriculum. Uh, so a num- uh, quite a number of those would have developmental language disorder. But we do also take children case by case who have a language disorder that is comorbid with a biomedical condition. So in some instances, um, autism, um, you know, children with autism might also be enrolled if language is their primary barrier in participating in school life. Uh, so we have uh, quite small class sizes. Uh, so we have a teacher and a teacher aide roughly to about 10 children. So it's quite a different sort of model to a number of uh, mainstream schools. Um, so we would have then uh, speech pathologists and occupational therapists who work very closely. Uh, so the caseload is quite small. Our speech pathologists might only have around 20 to sort of maximum 30 children on their caseload, of which they would then work with them every single day, um, either at a whole class level, so more of a tier one sort of intervention, or in a small group. Um, More recently, we've also been able to um, factor in a little bit of time to do some tier three or individual work for children who really need to consolidate some skills. So we've got a lovely opportunity working quite closely with our teaching speech pathology and occupational therapy colleagues. Uh, We also have a school psychologist, physiotherapist, we have music therapists and counsellors who work across the whole school um, because we know that a number of children with developmental language disorders or or comorbid language difficulties can often have uh, motor difficulties. So a number of our children do need quite high intensity high intensive programs for their fine motor and gross motor development, um, sensory regulation, and then, of course, um, high prevalence between mental health needs and um, developmental language issues. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a, a quite a robust wellness team to support our um, young people and the, and the staff and the families that work with them um, to be able to support their ongoing, whether it's anxiety, um, depression or, or, or other mental health needs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and, and what grades are included in this school? So we would say we have primary and secondary. Okay. Oh, um, do you so do? We, okay. we would call it prep 
um, or foundation year of schooling. So children can enter school um, in Queensland and in Australia at about four and a half to five. Um, so we would have children from that age right through until grade 12 or when they would finish their um, usual schooling. So there's 100 children, roughly about sort of 70 in the primary years and roughly 30 in the secondary years. Um, so that in itself is unique in that um, a lot of services might be primary or secondary, but we work across the whole schooling age range. Mm -hmm. I am so envious. <laughs> I wish we had such programs here in Canada, but may maybe one day, maybe we'll, we'll work towards that goal. But I like how you said, um, you know, it's something that you're very passionate about and, um, you, you know, you, you live it and you're, you're working in it and now you're actually going to research it. Um, I interviewed a couple of episodes ago a colleague of mine who studies mindfulness in children yeah. who may have um, difficulties in school or who may have a communication or a language disorder or who may have anxiety and whatnot. And that's what she was saying. She says she, you know, she is a mind, she lives a mindful life. She practices mm -hmm. mindfulness and now she's helping children and youth mm -hmm. develop that mindfulness. So I think it's, it's wonderful when as a, um, a professional, you can work in a field that is such a passion for yourself. Yeah, so yeah I, yeah, I think that if, uh, if anything for my children, I hope that they can find that uh, passion in their field of work later on. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about your PhD. So you're saying you're going to be evaluating the, I, I kind of missed exactly what you were trying to do yeah. with your PhD. So if you can so uh, essentially what we're looking at is um, the educational needs of students with developmental language disorders. Um, there has been um, quite a lot of, um, I guess, shifting terminology in recent years. Um, we know that there has been um, a lot of work that's been done nationally and internationally around, well, what, who are these groups? of children, how do we define them? Um, here in Australia, we certainly are supportive of the term developmental language disorder, describe children with unexplained language impairments. Um, we know that that's not consistent necessarily um, internationally, but it's something that um, within my work, um, certainly looking at these children and how they go at school, uh, in the broadest sense, um, from the literature, we know that they don't do particularly well. Um, and that we need to be consider we need to consider how we support them in schooling. So there's something about language that means that accessing the learning is impacted. Um, when I talk to teachers, I often say, um, you know, here's a brain, here's the basic anatomy. Do you know what? There's actually no part of the brain dedicated to uh, maths and science and geography. Um, it's an integration and a synthesis of, um, you know brain function that we use to acquire all of these skills and learning in schools. And so what we need to be able to filter that through is language. We do it via um, understanding and receiving information, but also by formulating our thoughts. Uh, and we know that children who present with language difficulties often don't generally get picked up. Often it can be attributed to something like behaviour, um, that they might actually be... Poor, um, 
whole self-regulators. Um, they might also be quite withdrawn or school um, demonstrating school refusal. Um, so there's there's a number of ways that these children might present that don't get picked up. Uh, so often I put on a bit of a you know a big a bit of a song and dance when I'm talking, and I said you know nothing else. If you can just remember that crazy guy who was standing in front of you that said maybe just think about language, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of my key message for teachers and helping them identify. Um, what language skills they need. So in um, my own research or with my colleagues, what we're looking at then is, well, what has been researched? Um, and we know that in the, in the literature today, um, children with developmental language disorder struggle in schooling. Um, there's a number of ways of supporting them, but what I'd really like to get down to the bottom of is what are the key stakeholder perspectives? So what do teachers, parents, allied health professionals and the young people themselves actually perceive their educational needs? Um, and then what can we do about it? Um, what do they see? And, I, and my hypothesis would be that they probably have different perspectives mm-hmm. um, on what school success looks like. Um, so, And how can we actually develop some supports to enable them to better access the curriculum, but also how can we see them progress in those non-curriculum areas um, this is probably getting off off my PhD and more into a personal passion, but, um, you know, how do they interact socially? How do they know what the current buzz movies and TV shows are and how do they use that knowledge to um, discuss it with their, their peers and maintain those proactive social interactions? So, um, you know, there's a lot that is involved in schooling and I guess in this PhD I'm going to snap up a very small chunk of it mm-hmm. and see well, what, what, what do people think and how can we translate that knowledge into practice for schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important to get the child's perspective as well. You know, what is important to them and what do they think about all of this? I mean, I'm, I'll say, unfortunately, um, they need to get, they need to go through school. Um, but you know, right now, at least in Canada, and it's like that other way, uh, elsewhere around the world, um, mm-hmm. the curriculum isn't designed for children who have language disorders. So they kind of are trying to fit in a curriculum that is not really conducive to their learning. So it's tough for them, for sure. And like you- language in order to engage in that learning process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a simple, you're looking at different um, discourse that's used in schools. You know, they, they need to be able to perform and do so much at such a complicated level and then integrate higher order language and, um, you know, inferential skills and all of these, you know, quite quintessential language abilities. But um, unfortunately, if you haven't picked them up by osmosis, you know, it's almost assumed by secondary school that you've got it. Yeah. And then you can do it where we know that, you know, quite a significant proportion of children don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can be more aware of it, hopefully we can do more to support them. Absolutely. And you, you touched on, you know, that all that, those, those social skills. So I've been talking a lot about social health lately and how yeah. it is very important for, for kids, for youth to be social and to interact and to understand those inferences and that sarcasm and those, you know, reading between the lines. And those are all things that are very difficult for, for children and youth who have language disorders for sure. Yeah. Often we use the example of, um, I guess this is probably a bit of an Australian or Aussie, you know, a lot of Aussie humour relies on play on words. 
Um, yeah. You know, and I guess that's probably similar to, to many languages in many countries, but, you know, if you don't get, um, you know, those homophones or, you know, that play on um, words, you kind of miss the joke um, altogether and, or, or you don't use them in your own humour, um, which is such an important part of growing up, particularly as a young person, um, to be able to use that language to demonstrate and show showcase your personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and often that will make the distinction between a person who we say is witty or not witty. You know, that wit yeah. is often understanding all of those subtleties and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so what... Like, why did you find interest in, in this topic? What led you <laughs> to this? Um, as a new graduate, well, I'll, st- I'll go back a step, actually. Um, if you had um, said to me at university that I was going to work in paediatrics and in particular developmental disabilities, I would have said you were absolutely crazy. <sighs> um, I'd completely gone in from a health impairment focus to work with you know, adults, acute settings, um, you know, unpacking when language and speech systems had become, you know, impacted by a very specific um, instance or occurrence. Um, and in my last year of, of speech pathology, I had a placement working with children with autism and absolutely fell in love with this concept that there are these young people out there that their brains just don't develop the way you know, you would expect them to and why is that the case? And um, as in an undergraduate, I've done a, a quite a lot on neurology and developmental biology, so it really fascinated me as to why kids don't necessarily pick up these skills or develop as we would expect them to. So that led me actually working um, with children with autism early intervention as a new graduate for a number of years. Um, and in that time, you know, ASD in Australia really took off and I think internationally took off was really quite a hot topic, you know. Um, At the time when I graduated, if you mentioned autism at the local coffee shop, most people would go, oh, I don't really know what that is. Whereas nowadays, a lot of people, even if it's have a superficial understanding Mm -hmm. what it is, so there's been some fantastic advocacy and awareness around this condition, maybe not to the depth and level we would like, but there is a population understanding. Um, And I was was going out, I'd heard about this little school, little leafy school called Glenleaden, and this young person um, was looking at transitioning there from our early intervention service. And I, I often describe Glen Leiden as sort of the, the little leafy country school in inner city Brisbane because it's just got this beautiful um, environment and feel about it. It's by the creek near the water, uh, big trees, very green, very lush, and it's very calming. You know, it's got that environmental feel to it. And I walked in and said, oh, I really like the feel of this place. You know, um, let, me know let me know if anything comes up. And they said, oh, well, actually... You know, there is um, a job available with our early childhood years if you're interested. And I thought, well, it sounds like a good progression to move from early intervention up into schooling, so I'll give it a go. Um, And what I found immediately was that I think it it might be a bit of an Aussie thing, but um, immediately this concept that these kids were a little bit like the underdog. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people and a lot of awareness had gone into other conditions, but these kids were just sort of there. And nobody really seemed to know that they existed. Um, so there's something about that that really drove my interest in that there was this huge population of kids, um, you know, and, and if we look at current prevalence data, it's quite remarkable that there's all of these kids out there. 
um, with a developmental language disorder, but um, most people didn't know about it. And I still can say to somebody, oh, I work with these children um, with this language impairment, it's called developmental language disorder, and they go, oh, I've never heard of that. Um, so, you know, a bit of a lifelong ambition is that one day, hopefully in a coffee shop, you know, you'll overhear somebody say, I've, you know, got a child with developmental language disorder and their friend says, you know, oh, yeah, I, I know a bit about that, I've heard that, or I've seen a movie about that, um, that we might have that eventual population level understanding that we just lack at the moment, mm-hmm. particularly. I, I can speak on behalf of Australia, but I think that seems to be everywhere. Absolutely. Um, so that really kind of got my interest going um, initially was, well, why do these kids behave and, and speak the way they do? You know, in a lot of other instances, it's because there's a known causality. Um, but for these kids, and for the most part, we actually don't know what causes. And for me as a, you know, a past scientist and, you know, science degree and coming in, um, you know, with an interest in sort of more the acquired aspects, you know, what, what was different? What was happening here? And I think I probably put too much emphasis initially on a lot of learning around um, functional MRIs and genetics and things that really interest me. And, mm-hmm. um, and I've probably moved more into the, I guess, the softer skills or softer sciences with time in my understanding that, well, these kids present in so many different ways. Um, how can we actually support them? at this point in time and knowing that will change with their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really become an area of sort of particular drive is, well, what are they doing now and how can we support them in getting to that next little step? Because actually once you've worked in the area for a while, you realise it's all the little things adding up rather than one big thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. And I, I can relate. Um, I was the same when I was um, completing my studies. I, I was heading to work with adults and work in the hospital setting and to become a medical SLP. And I did that for a little bit. And then I started working with children and language. And I mean, you can also work with language with adults, but um, Mm. just language in general fascinates me. It is, like you said, it's a lot of little things that you need to take into consideration. And it's not just uh, morphosyntax or it's not just, you know, the proper um, grammatical endings or whatnot. It's so much yeah. more than that. And so it's, it's very complex. So that's very interesting that um, how you, how you came about working in this field. Now um, I always ask my guests because this mm-hmm. podcast, like you said, you, your hope is that one day you'll be in a coffee shop and people will know about DLD or, or you know, mm-hmm. I think just, most communication disorders people don't know much about because I mean one of the main issues is people who have communication disorders have a hard time communicating and so they have a hard time advocating for themselves Uh, so it's our job to to help with that so this is kind of the reason behind this podcast is to uh, raise awareness and so uh, I always ask my guest what does communication mean to you Hmm. I think you, you hit the nail on the head before when you said it's so much more than just those little those little things. Um, for me, um, uh, you know, we've heard it a lot, particularly um, in the last sort of six months, uh, you know, around communication being a basic human right. And there was that beautiful video that was put out by the International Communication mm-hmm. Project where they talked about, you know, communicating in different language. And I think when you're in natural communicator we take that so significantly for granted it's not until you interact with somebody who's not um, a 
confident or competent communicator that we start to realise the impact that has. Um, so for me, it extends just beyond that receptive expressive breakdown or that form content use in that we have to use communication in day-to-day life. It doesn't exist in this sort of separate world or vacuum or, you know, it, it's not something that you can tease apart. And I often, you know, will talk to my tertiary students and say, well, you know, we might be doing a language assessment, but in fact there are lots of skills that are being um, incidentally assessed because you have to use um, multiple facets of life in order to participate in assessment. Um, so we never really just purely assess one thing. We get a lot of information in other areas. So uh, for me, communication extends beyond, I guess, that really, um, you know, like I said, expressive, receptive, pragmatic form content use to this is the day-to-day experience. Um, if you can't use language, it's difficult to access learning, it's difficult to get a job, it's difficult to learn to read, it's difficult to socially interact. Um, and they're the things that actually, if you ask the person, they're the things that they find most difficult. You know, it may not actually be somebody with a communication disorder saying it's my communication mm-hmm. is the biggest problem. It's actually the fact that that communication impacts on their ability to do the things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at it more from the, you know, an ICF perspective um, and look at participation, um, that provides a really strong rationale for why should we should be looking at the parent, uh, the, the patient or the client's interests and integrating those in our goal setting um, to make sure that it's representative of their day-to-day functional lives because only they know what they need to do. And as you said earlier, they may struggle to put that into words. And that's as a speech pathologist, we can really help them put their thoughts into words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not a, a simple definition. You know, what is communication? It's so large. And um, I think we still have a lot of work to try to raise awareness. And, and we are, you know, like, like you said, with Rattled and with all of these new groups that are coming together to try to raise awareness around the world, which... I I have high hopes that by the end of my career, like you said, I will be in a coffee shop one day and someone will know. Or, you know, my I I started this podcast by explaining that so many times I'm sitting in a plane and someone will ask me because I often have to go to Toronto and they'll ask me, oh, why? You know, what brings you to Toronto? And then I just think to myself, oh, I don't you know, I don't feel like explaining what I do because you're not going to really understand (laughs) What it is I do as a speech language pathologist. This card handed out. This is what I do. Exactly. Or less. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I get it. I do. Um, okay. So I, I, we touched a little bit on um, Glen Eden School. I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to kind of go back to that because I'm, I'm so mm-hmm. fascinated by this. So maybe what I'll start um, with right now is play a little sample of a mm-hmm. video that is available. Now I'm only able to find it on. Facebook at the moment is all is it also available on YouTube do you know or um it is also on our website I think it would be on YouTube because it's pulling it from somewhere okay um I will send you the link okay or it must be uploaded somewhere to be pulled through on Facebook and and on uh the website okay because what I can do is put it in the show notes as well so that people can see it um okay so Let's take a listen to this small clip here from um, the Glen Eden video. 
was having up to 70 seizures a day. So she spent the first two months in ICU being treated specifically uh, for that. It left her with a speech delay. Well, one of the interesting things about Noah's condition is that she has quite chronic anxiety. So what Glenn Leiden provides Noah is an inclusive environment, which is very hands-on. And the program is not just a teacher-student relationship. Uh, what they offer is nurturing, care and love as one of their main focuses for, for her program. What we've found with her, her engagement with Queen Leading is that she's improving every day. She's communicating and talking and forming sentences. When she first came, she, she wasn't really speaking. You know, she couldn't uh, cognitively kind of formulate sentences to communicate properly. And it's just so delightful to see the fact that this is her first year at Glen Leiden and she's communicating. It's amazing. So I really like how they finish that little section on communication and how she was, you know, able to communicate after uh, attending Glen Eden School for, for a little bit. Um, mm. Now, you were saying earlier that there's a, you know, teachers and teacher's assistants and speech language pathologists and occupational therapists and physiotherapists and music mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just um, a phenomenal team. So how do all these people come together and work with with the children and, and youth at Glen Eden School? I mean, oftentimes we fear that everybody kind of end up, ends up working in silos. So what is your strategy to make sure everybody's working together? It's a really, um, a really key question. In fact, when I first started... Um, I, we, we were actually able to secure a little bit of funding and what we wanted to look at was just one aspect of literacy and we actually looked at um, a little project where we found, you know, we had all of this multidisciplinary team and we picked out four areas of the English curriculum and we just looked at for one year how will all of those disciplines support the development of um, letter sound knowledge, letter formation, some of these really basic Um, educational skills that people just teach in schools that we know our children need more support and what it actually showed was we all have um, can be working on something but we can look at it from very different perspectives Um, and it was important to clearly define our roles in that Um, of course you know teachers are our curriculum specialists Um, they know the curriculum better than anyone else Um, our therapists through working with them and through their own um, skill development really come to understand what's involved in actually accessing and and what's involved in the curriculum Um, we have a model at speech and language development australia call our foundations for learning where we talk about there being a core um foundations being speech and language, cognition, motor, perception, sensory and social emotional skills. And in order to be able to access learning, which in this visual sits around um, those those six domains, um, we say we really need to have a strong foundation to access learning. So our teachers do a fabulous job of looking and unpacking and addressing the curriculum. And what our therapists do is really focus on those, those skills that enable access to the curriculum. Uh, so a, uh, a simple English lesson might involve uh, speech pathologists having worked on phonological awareness skills at multiple points, um, at multiple levels for different students in that class. Uh, the occupational therapist might be looking at ensuring that child has um, developed a letter formations that represent 
um, the graphings that uh, that then represent the phonemes they're working on with the speech pathologist. Uh, the teacher then integrates that into the work they do from a reading perspective and ensuring that they're developing their skills. Um, and then the physio might come in and ensure that they're actually able to maintain their postural control when sitting on the chair or sitting on the floor. Um, the music therapist looks at the engagement um, of all of those things and, and adds a musical element to ensure that engagement is high so our, our children are ready to learn um, and, and all of our professions bring something unique that we feel at Glen Leiden is really important to enabling our students to better learn. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful to have that team and does a team gather on a regular basis to discuss student progress I imagine? Absolutely. Our um, year level, we have multi-age year levels. Um, so our multi-age year level teams actually all sit together wherever possible to ensure that they are, you know, the speech and the OT are with the teachers. You know, they're accessible and it's actually a lot of that, um, you know, office dialogue that enables better outcomes in some instances mm-hmm. because we're right there and working with each other all day long. Um, and then we also have uh, weekly meetings and case discussions to ensure that, our staff know um, what each other are doing um, and shared planning. I mean, the importance of planning um, cannot be highlighted enough because if you can plan together, then you can implement together. You can measure together and monitor together. Um, so I w- I've often said for years it sounds fabulous, um, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and collaboration and multidisciplinary practice doesn't come Um, just by accident you have to intentionally and purposefully set out to do it Um, that's something that we do work very hard on when you've got that many different professionals working together every day um, with with our young people at at Glen Leiden so we do need to make sure that they do plan and uh, have time to plan and and time to communicate um, as well as time with the children in order to support (laughs) me to be absolutely So, I mean, for all of us who are not at Glen Eden and, you know, we we would maybe appreciate some tips or advice, what what would you say to professionals out there who are working with children who have either developmental language disorders or language disorders? Do you have any, Mm -hmm. from your experience, what what would you say to professionals? Um, I think the first thing would be definitely to familiarise yourself with new ter- the terminology and um, criteria um, for developmental language disorder. So the, the catalyzed papers um, are freely available. So I'd highly recommend those. There's links on the Rattled website, um, but you can just search those and, and access them. Um, so I understand that DLD will then often also present with comorbid conditions. Um, I... I say frequently I actually couldn't do my job if I wasn't in a multidisciplinary team and and I find it amazing that people have such great outcomes when they're in in sole practice like sole practitioners with young people because there's often so much happening Um, consider the fact that language and motor development is quite related Um, so a number of children with DLD or language disorder may in fact have motor difficulties so um, being aware of that as a speech pathologist can be really important and the ability to then translate that into what that looks like with our education colleagues Um, there's going to be so many different things happening which is why we do have this foundations for learning model because we're trying to address the fact that every child looks different 
um, that those needs might vary. Um, in fact, until recently, or, or, or continuing, there's been very little research into sensory processing in children with developmental language disorder, but clinically we know that these children do present with differences in their sensory, prefer- uh, mm-hmm. sensory preferences, um, but there's not a lot of research out there. So it may not be something that people are looking for. Uh, so we are, we're continuing to develop our understanding in this space. Wherever possible, of course, it's great to have a multi-disc team, you know, even if it's not uh, cohabitating, even if it's a, a team you build in and around that child um, and that that's somebody that you, that's so people that you liaise with to build the, a bit, the skills and um, the abilities of the child but also working with the families that sit in and around that child. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my other big piece of advice would be that it, DLD in particular is a lifelong condition. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a little bit of a perception that children will grow out of it, um, that they um, it's more of something we deal with in the early years and primary years, um, but we're seeing some fabulous research coming out with our adolescents. Um, but then we need to change and adapt throughout the lifespan. So um, somebody's level of support when they're three is different to when they're 13, which is different to when they're 23. Um, and that there are adults out there with this condition and yet there's probably little to no services or supports out there for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, wherever possible, you know, I say if you can talk to somebody, who, an adult with a developmental language disorder, you know, um, you can get some amazing insights into their needs and, and their thoughts around um, growing up with the condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot happening. Certainly more evidence is growing. So being able to use that evidence to, evidence to inform our practice. Um, but we do know that that takes time. So keep learning and understand that this space is constantly changing. I often um, reference a paper that Dorothy Bishop wrote in 2010 looking at the different um, number of, numbers of um, papers and funding for different conditions um, and the, relating that back to the prevalence. And, and, you know, we do have a research to practice gap that's significant in this space. Um, so new resources are being developed and new research is being done every day and some of it's fantastic and it's for free. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you, wherever possible, you know, um, tap into social media, um, tap into organisations like Rattles or Salda um, because they will be trying to make sure that not just the families but also the practitioners that uh, are working with these people have access to that information wherever possible. Mm-hmm. So I will be putting all of those sites on the show notes. So you did talk about Rattled. You talk about that Dorothy Bishop article. Do you know if that one's open access, the 2010 one? I don't know off the top of my head, sorry. It doesn't matter. I I can put the link. (laughs) (laughs) I can put the link to the um, abstract if it's not open access. And then the SALDA. What is is SALDA for the listeners who may not be familiar with that? So that's um, the organisation or the not-for-profit that operates the Glen Leaving School and our school support services is Speech and Language Development Australia. Um, as a lot of not-for-profits done, we've gone through a, a, a rebrand and a name change in 2016. So we're still increasing awareness that we're, we've been around for um, more than 40 years. In fact, it's actually Glen Leaving's 40th anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so while we've been around for a long time, a lot of people still don't know um, who we are and what we do. So I think... Um, certainly connecting with us on social media and through our website. We're trying to make sure that 
people have the resources and information they need to help mm-hmm. make informed decisions. Because there are modules, are there not, for, uh, yeah. yeah, some of them are, yeah. are free, and then some, if you want to yeah. keep going, those are phenomenal. I, I looked at the ones that were available uh, for free, yeah. but, um, yeah, absolutely, I'll, I'll put all those resources on the show notes. I think it's great. Yeah, so the professional learning um, has really taken off since we kind of did a soft launch really in October with, um, we've received funding through the Department of Education and Training here um, to develop online learning modules for teachers, but they're actually fabulous for everyone. Exactly. The first four are um, speech-language communication, um, understanding what a language disorder is, uh, identifying a child with language disorder in your classroom, and the fourth one is actually around that foundations for learning I mentioned earlier with the with the domains enabling access to the curriculum um, but afterwards we actually went to the teachers and said what do you guys want what do you want to know about um, so they identified um, classroom strategies positive behavior support literacy and numeracy as well as um, speech sound development social skills sensory processing and handwriting so there's eight modules that are quite um, cheap. You can actually buy them as a pack or you can buy them individually if there's only one that really interests you. But the idea isn't to make oodles of money, but so so much as make it accessible um, for people and be able to maintain them because, you know, with technology changes, I'm already working on, you know, second editions now to make sure they keep up to date with all the internet browser changes that have happened in the last six months. So there's a lot um, that you can freely access the first four, um, as well as we're developing webinars and workshops. So there's actually a free webinar, recorded webinar at the moment on understanding DLD that I ran earlier this year, Um, as well as some other ones coming up. We're doing one on genre writing and vocabulary and visual perceptual skills later in this school term. So lots happening, lots of information, and hopefully it's accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that just because you're in Australia doesn't mean that it's not applicable to other other areas. So I think we need to not um, reinvent the wheel all the time. So yeah. I, I, I've um, been on that website a few times, and I like I said, I've I've looked at some of the first few modules, and I think it's fantastic. So I'll definitely fantastic. be sharing those. Now you've said you. a few times um, throughout this episode, you've talked about motor ability, and I think that too a lot mm-hmm. of people that may come as a surprise. So can you maybe a little elaborate a little bit on that? So yeah. what is the correlation between DLD and um, motor ability? Look, there's growing research that um, motor development and language are interrelated, but the relationship is complex. Mm-hmm. Um, I look, this is completely anecdotal, but this is an observation I've had with my own daughter who had motor development issues and didn't walk until she was two, in that the limitations that she had on her ability to navigate her environment reduced her ability to interact with different vocabulary she might be exposed to or or different skills that she might associate with verb development. So certainly um, just from a personal um, perspective, um, you know, I've seen that motor movement is something that we use as um, a way of accessing language development and learning. Uh, what we see, though, is if we take children at Clanleaden School who we assess across a range of domains, um, one of the things that I found most phenomenal um, in our retrospective study that we um, looked at, we published the data on their language development, but what was unpublished was some work that we did around their motor skills. And if you think about a child with developmental language disorder, the uh, main core language skills of our students were 
you know, more than two standard deviations below the mean. But when we actually looked at their um, motor skills, the mean was actually nearly three standard deviations below the mean in their fine and gross motor abilities compared to typically developing peers. So that came as quite a huge surprise to me Mm -hmm. because if you look at um, a model of primary condition, was the language disorder their primary condition or was it their developmental coordination disorder, which normally would sit as a, um, you know, comorbid condition, you know, actually is that their primary condition? So Mm -hmm. you kind of have this sort of mental tussle with, well, actually on a standardised measure, they're actually poorer in their motor skills. Um, just by simply comparing those two domains. Um, so that might look like children struggling to use scissors or hold a pencil or suffer from significant fatigue when writing that extends beyond applying language into a written expression. Um, so, yeah, I was quite surprised. Mm-hmm. You know, I always thought Glenn had historically always had occupational therapists because clinically we'd seen that there was a need. Um, you know, and, and people would say, well, how do you justify that? how do you justify having occupational therapists? So we looked at all the data and, in fact, they had quite significant motor needs. And if you then think about how that relates to visual motor skills like throwing and catching a ball, Mm -hmm. um, they were also significantly impaired. Uh, Visual perceptual skills are needed to be able to copy from a, a board and then work on your desk. And in fact, we also found that our students had quite significant visual perceptual difficulties. Mm-hmm. So there was quite a lot happening for these young people that extended above and beyond language. Uh, if you maybe didn't have the OT on board, it might go unnoticed, um, mm-hmm. but it was obviously having a significant impact on their ability to learn. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of quite a, a, an area of interest, and I think I've been fortunate to work in a multidisciplinary team so I always do talk about um, these other areas like motor or um, sensory or perceptual skills because you know basic training speech pathologists generally you know our motor is focused purely on oral you know and verbal abilities um, but there's so much more to that um, and if they have potentially a apraxia mm-hmm. you know some sort of you know childhood apraxia of speech potential that their their motor planning is being affected in other ways mm-hmm. um so i will um if, when i often talk with tertiary students and i you know might be talking to them about providing therapy and i remind them that you know we might use as a therapist something like a coloring and cutting activity you know as a way of just engaging them in interest but if you've got a child who has a developmental coordination disorder whether it's identified or not just the target of the therapy become the oral language skill that you were previously thinking you'll work on or is all of a sudden it's switched and actually being a motor-based task and the actual um you know time taken up in therapy is actually developing their motor skills mm-hmm. could you have achieved it in another way by pre-cutting it out or That's right. you know preparing your resource differently and it, it's just that coming back to thinking about what was i planning on addressing in therapy mm-hmm. um if all of a sudden the gluing and the cutting becomes the f- focus for the activity for a child perhaps I'm actually not setting out to achieve the goal I previously thought I was going out to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that usually shakes a few things up, I think, in some of my um, tertiary mm-hmm. students' thinking. So I like to highlight it because not everybody gets to work with these other professionals, but they bring so much to the way in which I've approached my thinking around developmental language disorder. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And even a, a teacher in the classroom, you know, you might be, they might be exactly. working on a, a lesson that requires fine motor skills or cutting or whatnot, all the yeah. while focusing on developing um, a narrative or I don't know, but, yeah. you know, doing the two yeah, together might be skills, too yeah. taxing for these children. So that's very interesting. I think the classic example is um, teachers do love to use word closure, word, word close activities, you know, when it's cut out the words and then stick them in the box in the right sentence. And, you know, I'll walk in and the teacher will say to me, well, they've spent half an hour cutting out the <laughs> shoes. You know, like yeah. that's all they've done. They haven't even gotten to the, the literacy and language component of the task and the lesson's almost finished. Yeah. You know, so you'll think about your curriculum adjustments and go, well, actually, could we just cut it out for them? Because it's not actually a cutting class. It's right. a literacy activity. Yeah. So what For can sure. you do differently? For sure. No, that's very interesting. And I find with my daughter, like I said, with the developmental language disorder, she is probably one of the clumsiest <laughs> kids I know. <laughs> so yeah. definitely that motor ability uh, comes into play. Definitely, definitely. So we talked about, you know, advice that you might give uh, professionals. So we talked about speech language pathologists, educators and whatnot. What about parents of children who might have a developmental language disorder? What can we say to parents? Because it can be, um, it's kind of an, an unknown disorder still. I mean, we're, we're getting there. Yeah. And if you Google it, yeah. there's, there's yeah. more information out there now than ever before. Yeah. But what, what would you say to parents? I think if I can draw on Glenn Leiden as an example, um, the experience I've had at Glenn Leiden when you're with parents who have children with a shared condition is a sense of camaraderie and a sense of relief. Um, and then when they are planning to transition and going back to um, their local school or a, or a mainstream school that they've chosen, it's understanding that all of a sudden they're putting on that battle armour again and they have to go in and advocate and fight for their child's needs in the educational setting. Um, so wherever possible, I say to parents, surround yourself with other parents, whether it's they have similar needs to your child, um, whether they're parents that you see through the speech pathologist. By surrounding people, yourself with like-minded parents, you can actually have positive shared experiences. There are going to be times where it sucks and it's hard. Um, you know, you sit there and, and you listen as a professional and, you know, um, you think there's not there's only so much I can do, but parents can sympathise and understand at a, a very different level from a professional-to-parent relationship, from a parent-to-parent relationship. So... There's ways of doing that face-to-face, -face, but nowadays there's actually quite a number of um, parent groups on social media for developmental language disorder, um, particularly out of the UK, and more recently I've seen one that's come through from Australia. Um, so if possible, connecting on social media is a great way of um, finding parents that are like you. Um, the other piece of advice is that often when you get a new diagnosis, the first feeling is um, despair, grief, loss, um, concern, all of the above. Um, and sometimes it's actually helpful to speak to a parent of a child who's older than your child. Um, I once sat in on a, on a presentation that some parents had organised where they invited the high school-aged parents to come and talk to the primary school-aged parents. And the understanding and wealth of knowledge that they shared was something that as a professional I never could. Mm -hmm. um, 
they said, you know, I stressed about all of those things, but you know what? It's actually turned out okay. Or it's not turned out the way that I thought, but it's turned out better than I thought. Or, um, you know what? That was something that I don't even worry about anymore. I worry about other things, but these are the things that um, I need to think about and maybe you need to think about too. Um, you know, planning for the future is something that when you're newly diagnosed kind of slips down on the to-do list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to talk to parents of children who are older than yours can actually be a really helpful strategy. Um, and a third kind of point to parents would be uh, around being wary of um, cures or um, what we like to call in the industry snake oil merchants. You know, if it's too, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We know that developmental language disorder is a lifelong condition and that's really sometimes a, a really hard pill to swallow. Um, but we know that with really good quality support and interventions, these children can actually do remarkable things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had you know, you know young people with developmental language disorder who are at university and studying accounting. Um, one I know one who's a film and television producer um, you know, they've gone on and had, you know, families of their own. Um, so, you know, it's a lifelong condition and it's not something that will go away. But if somebody is telling you that it's they're here to cure you, fix you, um, yeah. or something's going to do something in two sessions or three sessions, it probably is too good to be true. Um, I would also recommend um, Carolyn Bowen and Pamela Snow's book, Making Sense of Interventions for Parents. Um, it's not an overly expensive book. I, I don't get any, um, you know, be- benefits from promoting it. It's just an excellent read and it's something that you can pick up and it will help determine, you know, what's the theory that informs these practices. Um, you know, is $40,000 worth of intervention, you know, with no evidence base for it, something that you really want to do as a parent. Um, but in those moments of grief and despair and stress, parents sometimes um, will make decisions mm-hmm. and, and and as a professional I want to be there to support them mm-hmm. um, and I think some of those resources like you know that book or um, I know the music briefings I think have now um, been posted elsewhere but there's a number of tools that can help people make decisions because everything comes at a cost mm-hmm. nothing ever is for free and we need to balance that decision um, potential progress with also how much it will how much it's going to cost and mm-hmm. we need to be able to inform parents and parents need to be informed to make the decision because at the end of the day it's their child that's right or they you know the person they're working you know that's in their family mm-hmm. so um all we can do is advise um but we want to make, sh- to make sure they're as well armed as possible mm-hmm yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was talking to Ellen Thedardetier earlier today, recording a, another mm-hmm. episode in French only. But we, we'll we'll make plans to record an episode with her in English, but that's what she was saying. Right. You know, you yeah. have to factor in what's right for the family economically, uh, in terms yeah. of their schedule, in terms of, you know, so every family will be different and not there's no one program that will work. And like you said, um, Sometimes it may be too good to be true. So it is a lifelong disorder. So I will put that book in the show notes as well. Thank you for, for recommending that. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so I'm being mindful of the time. We're, we're, yes. we, we're about 50 minutes of uh, yeah, rolling down. time. We're doing great. Um, I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, yeah. So, you know, would you have a 
take home message? I mean, I, you've covered a lot so far. Yeah. Uh, what would you want our listeners to, to remember or to recall from this podcast? Um, I, I guess I'll focus on the DLD because that is, you know, a, a major passion of mine. Um, I've already said DLD is a lifelong condition. Um, what, what I really would like to see now is we've got the terminology, um, but we don't have access to the services. And that really is going to come from advocating at a local level. Um, being able to work within your local systems with the knowledge um you know, the, the, the systems within, uh, and the processes that you have, but working out what works for the people in your area, there is never going to be a universal system or, or healthcare or DLD mm. for everyone everywhere that is going to be exactly the same. So it's really important to think about what it looks like for you. Um, I think sometimes, and I hear this often from families, is that a child with DLD, that the families are being told, there's nothing more I can do for you, um, or they're being put in that too hard basket. Um, but I think that really isn't good enough anymore because we do know a lot more than we have ever had in the past around supporting these young people. Um, so it's up to us as professionals um, to, to develop an understanding about the right intervention so that each child can mm. actually find their voice and develop the skills that they want to have the future that they deserve. Mm -hmm. I really like how you say that the, the too hard basket, you know, I think Mm -hmm. we need to move away from that and try to find a solution for those children Mm -hmm. who are really having a hard time learning language. So I like that. Thank you. You've already mentioned a few resources. You talked about the Salda website that I'll put, uh, so it's salda.org.au. You've talked about the Rattled, so R-A-D-L-D.org. Anything else that comes to mind? You've talked about a bunch of books. I'm just giving you a one last opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so many things. The thing that I'm loving about being involved with Rattled at the moment is we really are trying to centralize some resources, um, which fell out of our ABCs of DLD campaign last year. So the B was build your knowledge. So we thought we better have some resources available, Mm -hmm. which now um, we're sort of growing and shaping as, as things become more available um, but of course one of the quintessential examples of that is the fantastic rattled youtube videos mm-hmm. um, you know which we'll continue to add to and i'm really looking forward to 2019's campaign um the dld you and me because we're calling for people to create their own videos and and be the face of dld you know so much of what we've done is a very intellectual level which i love and resonate mm-hmm. with but there's also a component of developmental language disorder that's very personal um, and if we can actually put a face to the name we'll be able to build awareness um, and perhaps even tap into people that didn't even realise they had the condition. So there's heaps of resources, um, both on the Salda and the Rattled um, website, but then, you know, good old social media. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're not a Twitter user, please, I think that's how we've connected yes, through Twitter. absolutely. Um, you know, the, the Devlangdis, D-E-V-L-A-N-G-D-I-S hashtag has more information and resources than you could, you know, poke a stick at, as we'd say here. Um, so there's plenty there. And I actually think that Facebook's catching up as well. I'm seeing some lovely stuff through Facebook and Instagram, mm-hmm. um, particularly um, as we're seeing people with communication disorders are sort of throwing towards more um, social social media use and, and using things like Instagram because they are pictorial-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, being able to find out 
find our people um, mm-hmm. through social media is becoming um, increasingly important. So, yeah, I'm sure there will be other things that I'll think of after today, but um, if I do, I'll send them through. But definitely um, those sales are rattled resources um, definitely come to mind. Mm-hmm. And you talked about advocacy earlier. Do you remember off the top of your head, what is the next uh, uh, awareness day for DLD? I do. It is Friday the 18th of October. Um, so International DLD Awareness Day is um, being coordinated by Rattled. Um, so we have really grown over the last few years. Um, we have the most phenomenal founders um, mm-hmm. who you can read more about on our website who um, you know, really did want to say, look, you know, we've created this you know, amazing advocacy opportunity, but we feel like we've taken it where we wanted to take it um, and approached uh, Maplick in the UK, Stephen Parsons there, and said, you know, would you be interested? And Stephen, his infinite wisdom, said, well, why don't we form an international group? So now we have a representative from Canada, um, the US, the UK, Australia, and China um, on the international committee that operates um, the day-to-day, you know, uh, logistics are rattled, um, and is just so thankful for the opportunity. I think every meeting we have is a real hoot and we love um, getting together. And the big thing for this year was is putting that face on the condition. So creating um, stories that they can write and submit through the Rattled website, as well as videos they can share on social media. Um, but one of our um, massive, massive, massive projects is we're looking at translating out some of our resources mm-hmm. into other languages. And we currently have... 42 international volunteers mm-hmm. um, who will be approaching very shortly with a process to help translate um, some of our resources. So that's going to be amazing mm-hmm. uh, because DLD isn't just a difficulty in English. It that's right. affects every language <laughs> all around the world. So for us to be able to have um, somebody like Anita Wong from Hong Kong has just joined us on the uh, Rattle Committee is phenomenal and has really been helpful in supporting us in our translation Project. So we've just put up our um, Chinese translations in the last few days. So um, we're growing um, and look forward to sort of spreading the word and, and getting people involved on the 18th of October. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll put that information as well in the show notes. And I think, you know, what's different this year is we're really inviting not only the researchers and the speech language pathologists and the professionals, but we're inviting those families and those people that have lived in some shape or form with uh, DLD, either be themselves or their children or, or whatnot to, to come forth. So I think that uh, this year we will really raise awareness uh, even more yeah. so than previous years where every year we're, we're kind of hoping to um, raise more public awareness. So, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much, Sean, um, no for agreeing to be on this podcast, but also thank you for all the work that you're doing um, with uh, Rattled and, and raising awareness for this. Um, like Dorothy Bishop says, it's it's very common but not very well-known disorder. So we need to do a lot of work to try to make it just as well-known as, like you were saying, autism. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you very much. And um I look forward to, to you know following your Twitter um, uh-huh. uh, uh, posts. So if anybody wants to follow you, what is your handle? Oh, it's uh, my handle is at Sean Ziggenfuse, and I'll spell it. I'll spell it out for you, um, and we can put that in the notes later. But yeah, yeah, for sure. If you want to follow me on Twitter? You're more than welcome to. Okay, well, thanks again, and uh, hope you have a 
great afternoon, and I am probably going to head to bed pretty soon. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. Thanks right. so much for having me. Yes, you're very welcome. Take care. So following a little poll on Instagram, um, you guys told me that you wanted some bloopers. So here are some bloopers. With me today, I have, oh shoot, now I have to think of how to say your name. <laughs> That's okay. Hang on. Uh, okay, so say that again. Uh, Ziginfuse, right? No. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Ziginfuse. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll start over. It's okay. 